0: Friends, here's what I can tell you about prophets and prophetic resistance. Many people love a dead prophet. (laughs) Especially those who would be most fiercely critiqued by that prophet were they alive. Think about, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his radical message, it was a radical message, and how that has been co-opted in this revisionist history, this sort of whitewashing of who he was, this intentional amnesia. You'd think that he'd never been arrested, that he'd never marched, that he'd never organized, that he'd never blocked business as usual, and instead went around saying please and thank you all the time. And that's what today's activists should do, is the implicit carryover. But please, and thank you friends, never got anybody anywhere in the quest for justice. Oh yes, people love a dead prophet whose fierce spirit and call to action can be tamed and managed and controlled once they are gone. Today, many admire and lift up Sojourner Truth, a former slave, a fierce abolitionist, and a women's rights activist, who spoke at the Ohio Women's Convention in 1851. She spoke for equal human rights for all women, as well as for all blacks, including the right to vote. But during her lifetime, and even afterwards, many white suffragettes didn't support black women, and black women were often marginalized. These same struggles happen today, but now we just hold Sojourner Truth up as this amazing person, not hearing the prophetic call of her voice. And Mahatma Gandhi, who inspired Dr. King, is often lifted up for his beautiful quote, I love it, we say it to one another often, be the change you want to see, an important but it can be used to gloss over the fact that Mahatma Gandhi, through nonviolent resistance, disrupted and organized and boycotted and finally secured India's independence from Britain. It is easier for those in power or those close to power or those who like the status quo to love a dead prophet. Because when they are alive, Prophets interrogate the status quo. They question privilege. They say, we do not consent to this world order. Prophets poke and prod. They lament. They wail. They make art and poetry and protest dance. They take on the power of empire and say to those in charge, this is not the vision that God or the spirit of life has for this world. Prophets do not use magic crystal balls to predict the future. They proclaim a vision of what that future can and must be. They demand that we repent of our greed, our self-centeredness, our indifference to the suffering of others. Prophets play offense, not defense, as they cast this vision. They don't argue to maintain the little gains that have been made, the crumbs that they or their people have been given, They demand that their full humanity and their rights and their freedom as children of God be recognized. King didn't just stop with the Voting Rights Act. He took on the whole system. He called to account a military industrial complex. He called it morally abhorrent and obscene that we would spend millions and millions of dollars killing people of color, sending people of color to kill people of color while at home, Unemployment was high, poverty was high, education was not equal for everyone. He had a vision of a country without poverty, with access to housing and education, with jobs that paid a living wage. He fought for and died for that vision. That's what prophets do. And prophetic resistance, who's in me? Keep that going, keep that going, amen. And prophetic resistance, friends, is about refusing to follow or comply with injustice. When I thought about resistance, I thought, and I think probably parents maybe go in there right now, if you have children, like your children are brilliant at resisting you. <laughs> I think about our kids, like when we're in the library and they're like, five minutes till the library's closing, ding, and you're like, all right, it's time to go. And they resist. They, it depends, it can take various forms. They might lay down on the floor. They might, they might go limp, like you cannot move this 60 pounds of limp child, like, I don't think that the request to leave the library is an unjust request, let me be clear. So I, so I don't think that like, the resistance is merited in that case, that level of resistance, but that is a piece of resistance that we can certainly hold in our toolkit of ways to resist. It's sort of this non-compliance, this non-violent non-compliance. Resistance, prophetic resistance, is proclaiming that you will not be complicit with immoral laws and actions and behaviors. Amen. 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 Yesterday, I was with 2,000 people. It filled up this church, and there was an overflow seating area for other people. 2,000 people of faith in North Minneapolis, and Doran Shantz, the executive director of Isaiah, said it perfectly about prophetic resistance. She said, prophetic resistance, this is one piece, is pushing back against state-sponsored scapegoating and terrorizing of immigrants and refugees, particularly in this moment, black and brown Muslims. That is what prophetic resistance looks like. It pushes back hard against an authoritarian government and administration that is attempting, look at the news this week, that is attempting to lay down the groundwork to silence the media, to distort the truth, and to beat down opposition. Prophetic resistance says, we do not consent. We do not consent. And so, friends, I want to say to you, as people of faith, we must refuse to be chaplains of the empire, of this American empire. And I realize this language, chaplains of the American empire, might be minister-speak, so let me unpack this a little bit. This is the language I use on with my colleagues. The question right now is like, are we gonna be us, like as ministers? are we gonna be chaplains of this American empire, or are we gonna be prophets of the resistance, okay? What I mean when I talk about chaplains is that chaplains provide comfort. Often a chaplain doesn't ruffle any feathers or cause much of a disturbance. A chaplain of the empire helps the empire essentially because they are with the privileged folks and they make them feel mostly okay about what's happening. They provide comfort to those already mostly comfortable. Chaplains of the empire do not fight the empire. As people of faith, we cannot be chaplains of the empire. We must be prophets of the resistance. And as I say those words to you, friends, as I sat with this sermon, what I will honestly confess to you is I don't know exactly what that means for us to be prophets of the resistance, individually or collectively. And the reason I say that and the reason I'm sitting in this place of what does it mean to be part of a prophetic resistance is because Elaine spoke to us last Sunday so beautifully and she said many of us are not having the same experience right now in this moment. For some of us, depending on who we are, our very existence has been resistance. Our very existence has been resistance. So if you're transgender, or if you're a person of color, or if you're queer, or if you're differently abled, simply existing and loving and moving through life and living your life out loud, you are resisting the dominant paradigm that says, no, there's a particular way that gender breaks down, or no, there's a story here about the supreme nature of whiteness and white skin and and white superiority. There's a way that bodies should look and things that bodies should be able to do. So for many of you, you know a ton about resisting because existence is resistance for you. You show up every day in ways large and small resisting a culture and a paradigm that would not see you. But for many of us, and this is what I say when I say I don't know what it means to be a part of the prophetic resistance, for many of us, including me, this is a new moment in many ways. And if we are truly to meet this moment, part of our task is to be guided by those who know something about resistance and to build coalitions with them to amplify their voices. Part of this work then is to hear their stories and to speak their stories into places that they may not have access. Prophetic resistance is about moving away from our old map, this place we know, these comfortable routes and routines, into this new place of vulnerability and tremendous power because we begin to sense the strength of the we and know who we mean when we say we. Here's how that can look. As Dr. King, supported by many women, or many women organizers and men behind him, he's sort of the public figure, as he stepped into his prophetic leadership, he knew the full weight of vulnerability, of what that prophetic leadership asked of him, how vulnerable he was. He got death threats regularly. He got hate mail regularly. He had people around him turn against him and say, no, you're off message now. Why are you talking about war and the economy and a people's march? You're, they're off message, doctor. He knew vulnerability, but he also knew the power that comes from speaking the truth. And he knew the power that comes from being with a body of people who were marching, who were rolling, who were singing for justice. This moment calls for a kind of courage and vulnerability that may be new and even terrifying to many of us. Let me unpack that a little bit further. I've been reading James Baldwin. How many of you are turning to your James Baldwin and a a prophet, a prophet in our own time? In the fire next time, he says, speaking to his nephew, you must accept them. He's talking about white people. And you must accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. These white people are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They have had to believe for many years and for innumerable reasons that black men are inferior to white men. Many of them indeed know better, but as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed. And to be committed, says Baldwin, is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. So friends, this moment is asking those of us with relative privilege and those of us with white skin privilege or racialized as white to deeply interrogate that privilege and identity and to step into that place of commitment. Because right now, if we do not listen to and then center the voices and the experiences of people of color, of those who are most at risk in this moment, Muslims and immigrants and others, then we will not be able to offer an effective resistance and our power will be squandered. That is my greatest fear in this moment, that in our sense of anxiety and fear, we will rush to try to solve and we will not bring or hear or center those who know how to resist the best. Are you with me on this? Lena K. Gardner said this several years ago. She said, we are strong not because we don't need anyone, but because we need everyone. And this moment calls us to recognize a larger strength and a bigger we. In this moment, a great and tremendous power is available to us, and rather than playing defense in this moment when everything is up for grabs, when the resurgence of the birth of this country based on genocide and racism is in play, as is this vision for a country finally living into its promise. In this moment, we can play offense rather than defense. We can step into that vulnerability and discomfort and work in coalition with folks we've never worked with before. This moment, this moment, offers vulnerability and power. And I want to share with you on a personal note a tiny little piece of this last Wednesday when I stepped into some of my own vulnerability, a small little piece. There was this call for faith leaders to gather at the Capitol on Wednesday, to gather for this press conference to say, we as a community, as people of faith, uh, immigrants are welcome here. Refugees are welcome here. The Twin Cities, yes, immigrants are welcome here. Refugees are welcome here. So this call went out to say, stand with us, share this message, stand with city leaders who are gonna maintain this separation ordinance. That's what the Sanctuary City Ordinance essentially is. It's a separation ordinance, ordinance so that city police do not have to take on federal law enforcement responsibilities in the city. The community is safer that way. So the call went out, someone personally called me, Justin, will you show up, will you stand, will you be with us? I was asked to go, I couldn't be there. I had to pick up Jesse at daycare and then Tucker at the bus stop. I was in a meeting with some of you and I shared, as I really checked in with myself, I shared the anguish and the tears, the, the grief I felt at wanting to be there and being unable to go. And I think honestly for me and for many of us, that's a tension. We will carry and wrestle with and prayerfully discern over and over again in the months to come but something beautiful happened after that moment and this emotional uh, i had that this emotional moment i was in i was talking with ruth reverend ruth right after the meeting and she said in that ruth kind of way you many of you have heard her preach she's like hey like (laughs) really loving just like hey 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 the next time, she said to me, the next time you need to go to something like that or be there for something like that, I'll pick up Tucker from the bus, right? Right, like I'll, I'll pick up Jesse. I'll take care of your kids. And, and I was like, oh, ditto, I heard it. So there, I, I, it, it just landed in me in this really profound way of, of this is, that's right. And she said to me, she said, Justin, we need to reimagine how we resource one another and care for one another in this new moment we're in. Like collectively, we need to imagine how we resource one another and care for one another in this moment that we're in. And it just rang so true to me. And I felt the power of this community, of you all, of what we can do, this reimagining that can happen. And that's the work in front of us, reimagining everything because As Marissa Franco writes in this article, it's a long title, but I want you to hear the title of this article, she writes in this article, A Radical Expansion of Sanctuary, Steps in Defiance of Trump's Executive Order. So this is the lead up to why we have to reimagine everything, this article, A Radical Expansion of Sanctuary, Steps in Defiance of Trump's Executive Order. She says, there is one message in the actions of our president, there is only one core to his character from which all other messages flow. That message is that in order to make America great again, some of us will have to die, some of us will have to be pushed out, and some of us will have to be silent, malleable, and complacent. Friends, if this week has not made that clear to you, I don't know what will. We are in a time when our resistance muscles must be worked. And one of the ways this can happen is for us to formally become a sanctuary church, to publicly declare that we do not consent with the groundwork being laid to deport millions of people. We do not consent. We do not consent, we do not consent with the groundwork being laid to ban and bar Muslims and other refugees. We do not consent to privatization of our park systems or our education system. We do not consent. We do not. Consent in becoming a sanctuary congregation is one way, publicly, as a community of faith, to say we do not consent with what is happening around us. It turns the church, this public declaration, into a place of resistance, a space for human freedom and dignity. And it shows our elected leaders in this city that we stand with them as they protect the city as a sanctuary city. It matters. We do not consent. This kind of public resistance is critical. And we need your help building this sanctuary church. So if you are a Spanish speaker, if you are an immigration lawyer, if you know Spanish speakers or immigration lawyers, really, if you believe that a faith-based resistance is critical, we need you. And our sanctuary team is downstairs. You can talk to them after the service. Please do that. I wanna read a little bit more of this article to you to expand our minds around what sanctuary can mean and what resistance can look like. So Franco goes on in her article to say, sanctuary is a spiritual stance. Sanctuary says, oppression is trying to fill our lives with fear and blood and daily numbing horror, but not here, but not here. Sanctuary is our duty And this is no time for our ideas of sanctuary to be exclusive, she says. Sanctuaries must include not only undocumented people, but also non-immigrant Muslims, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer people, black and brown people, indigenous folks, and political dissidents, right? She goes on to say, Trump has put people in power who are obsessed with our torture, subjugation, and oppression. What else do we need to know? Not one of our movements or organizations is strong enough alone without shared force. We will be decimated. So friends, we have a building. This is a huge asset. It is a sanctuary space, a place to mobilize, to rest, to plan, to plot, to get creative, to find refuge. We don't have to lead the resistance but we can enable the resistance. We can partner with the resistors and in this way amplify our own prophetic voice. This is a moment for many of us to step out of those old identities and patterns and to experience a new kind of vulnerability and power that comes from moving into those unfamiliar spaces. This is the time we can go on the offense to proclaim a new vision of the world. We need one another. We need to know that the we is ever expanding. We need one another in this space. All of us in the times ahead and friends, we need our faith and the fierce love at the heart of that faith. We need one another and we do not consent to what is happening around us. May our faith hold us. May we reach out to one another May we know the strength of our power as we come together. May it be so, and amen.